Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today, co host Mark Miller. I did it. You did it. I'm here, man. You, that's what you did? Yes, I showed up, man. I've been <laughs> waiting here all week for you guys to come back. Oh. Have you done anything else all week? You know? No, but I figure if I don't close the browser, I'm guaranteed a slot back in the next time. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you've been here long enough, Mark. I think, you know, if, if you were misbehaving too much, I think we would have uh, booted you out. So I think I think you're good to go now. Maybe. Yeah. I, I can close the browser <laughs> this time at the end of the show. Yeah. I won't tell you that you're you can't get back in, but. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's bring on our guest uh, for this week. It's uh, Fyodor Sazanovitz. Welcome, Fyodor. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, before we get into our main topic of today, why don't you just give us a, a little bit of your background, you know, how you got into development, how you get into uh, working with .NET. Uh, so it's quite a, a strange story because I haven't actually done any computer science degree. I don't have official qualification in programming. Uh, I did go to university, but my bachelor's degree was in environmental biology. And then I did master's in environmental informatics, which was kind of a mixture of uh, IT and uh, environmental science. But I didn't do any actual coding in, in my degree. Uh, I was kind of always interested in computers, but the reason why I've chosen biology instead is because most of my friends were going to university to study computer science. And as, I, as naive as I was back then, I thought that if all of them are going to study computer science, then by the time I'll graduate, there won't be any jobs. So I decided to select an unusual degree, and environmental biology just sounded as kind of vaguely useful, but as unusual as, I could, <laughs> uh, as it could be. But then when I uh, found a job after I graduated, uh, I was working for um, a water engineering company. And then I got into uh, programming by uh, getting in touch with the programming team that the company had. And um, uh, I, volunteer, I started volunteering uh, to, to help them to fix various bugs. And gradually I taught myself how to code with some of, of their mentorship as well. Uh, one problem with that particular company was that uh, it wasn't paying very well. Uh, I, I'm talking about uh, paying way lower than a warehouse operator was getting in my local <laughs> supermarket warehouse. Um, so uh, when I was confident enough uh, to apply for a, a proper programming job, because in that particular position, uh, my job title was not a software developer. Uh, I, I was doing software de de development in my work, but I was still just assistant analyst for like... Um, uh, hydrology. Uh, uh, but, but, but then when I was confident enough uh, to start applying for other jobs, I did, and uh, I got accepted elsewhere, uh, got a, a job with a proper software development, developer title, and since then just been working as a software developer. Uh, eventually, what I started doing as well is uh, uh, writing a lot of content online. Uh, I started my own blog. It's available at uh, scientificprogrammer.net. Um, and start creating content. Um, so you, you found me by um, finding my article on InfoQ. So uh, I've got a lot more articles and I wrote some books as well. Um, regarding .NET specifically, uh, uh, the first uh, programming framework that I used was .NET, but the first language was VB.NET, which is rarely used these days. Uh, because it was gradual progression for me, because uh, by the time I started uh, volunteering, 
with that team um, uh, uh, to help them to solve their problems. I did know a little bit of VBA, which is uh, the programming language used in Excel to write macros. And VB.NET was just a natural progression from that into a proper programming language. Uh, and for my second job, I taught myself how to write code in C-sharp. Uh, and since then, just been doing primarily that. I did work with some other languages as well. So for example, I did uh, write a couple of Android apps in Java. I did use Golang to write some uh, Docker extensions. Uh, I did uh, write some front-end code. I, I used JavaScript, various frameworks and libraries in JavaScript. But .NET, until this day, uh, remains my main area of expertise. So it looks like you've got a number of books that talk about the, you know, the easiest way to do something, you know, the easiest way to be a software developer, or the, the easiest way to learn design patterns or, or you know, work with, you know, C sharp and, and GRPC and things like that. Um, so are most of your books and things like that uh, geared towards somebody that's just getting into uh, being a software developer? Uh, so the easiest way to become a software developer is the book that is geared uh, towards somebody who is thinking about becoming a software developer. Uh, in that book, I basically provide a step-by-step -step process uh, that worked for me and worked for other self-taught coders that I know. Uh, I start the book by uh, telling people the pros and cons of software development so they can actually decide for, for themselves whether they, uh, this career is for them before they even start doing it. Uh, for the, 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 the design patterns, um, that book is uh, more geared towards um, people who already know C-sharp but don't necessarily know the best practices, so primarily junior developers, junior or mid-level developers. Uh, design patterns is something that... Uh, uh, the design patterns are used uh, in, in a lot of places, and it's something that allows you to solve problems very efficiently. Uh, also, in some job interviews, um, they expect you to know design patterns to solve specific technical problems. If you don't, you're just not, not going to get that job. But the problem with design patterns that I found when I was learning them is that they're so hard to learn because the code for most of them just um, isn't in intuitive enough. So uh, I wrote this book uh, uh, by structuring it in a different way. First, I provide the context. So I provide the list of the problems that uh, you can apply design patterns in. And only then I provide implementation examples of each design pattern. So by the time the reader gets to implementation, they will already understand what it's used for. And that makes them easier to understand the implementation of design pattern. Because uh, most of the places, uh, th there are many good websites like uh, Refactoring Guru, for example, that teach the design patterns that pro provide really good implementation examples. But the problem with the, the approach that is commonly used is that uh, you look at the implementation first and then you figure out what problems you can apply it to, which is probably not uh, uh, the easiest thing to do. Do you find that it's certain personality types are, are more suited to becoming a software developer and, and being successful at it than other personality types? Uh, I, I'm not sure about personality types. So, for example, uh, uh, there's no difference between uh, being introvert and extrovert. I met some uh, introverted software developers. I met some extroverted software developers. Perhaps the only difference is that uh, extroverted software developers tend to move on to management career. Uh, afterwards, but uh, I've met some really good extroverted developers as well. Uh, 
as I say to people, uh, if you ever enjoyed playing strategy games on computer, then you're probably going to enjoy a software development career because uh, the thinking process is very similar. So if you are good at playing strategy games, you may be good at uh, being a software developer, as long as you like it as well. Uh, so I would say that software development career is suitable for somebody who likes solving problems and uh, who enjoys technology as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that too. You know, definitely with the strategy games, you know, I grew up you know, playing a lot of you know, video games and like Risk and even Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. Uh, but I also really enjoyed like puzzles. Like I could never walk past a, an unfinished jigsaw puzzle without, you know, having to put in one or two pieces before I could move on to do something. It's like, I, I just like that challenge. So that works well for me. Uh, yeah, I think I was the same. And most of the developers I know, um, quite a lot of them are into board games. Uh, I did really like uh, uh, solving puzzles when I was a kid. I didn't have many puzzles to solve because I was born in the Soviet Union, but <laughs> any puzzles <laughs> I could get my hands on, I did enjoy solving. Did you have the, the Rubik's Cube? I did, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was really big. I could never you know, solve it all in my own brain, but it was uh, a fun endeavor. So, all right. So, uh, I think our main topic today is going to be talking about uh, minimal APIs. You know, I think a lot of developers that have been working with .NET um, for the past number of years might be familiar with creating APIs using controllers, and minimal APIs is kind of a new way of doing the same thing. So. Uh, once you get us started, what's what's the first thing to know about minimal APIs? Uh, so minimal APIs are relatively recent. They've been out for a couple of years. But since uh, no, no, last November's release of .NET 7, they became almost as powerful as uh, controllers. Uh, prior to .NET 7, uh, minimal APIs were available, but um, uh, there was a very limited range of things you could do with them. You, you, you could pretty much write some basic API application with them. Now you, you, you can almost do anything with them uh, that you can do with controllers, uh, maybe 99% of use, use cases. Uh, uh, what are minimal APIs? So with minimal APIs, you, uh, uh, you, you, you bind uh, uh, HTTP endpoints directly to some methods when you register your application uh, request processing middleware. So, for example, if you have a program.cs file, the program class, the entry point of your application, uh, you can then just uh, uh, apply those uh, mappings to the app object before you launch your app. So you, you don't have to have the separate controller classes. Okay. So you just kind of, you set up your, your routes and things like that within uh, your program.cs, you know. Yes. Uh, I, I imagine for... Or larger applications that could probably get uh, pretty cluttered and you know a lot of things put into there. So is is minimal APIs uh, suited for some applications better than others? Uh, minimal APIs definitely are suited uh, better for smaller applications. If you have an enterprise grade API with uh, a lot of endpoints, uh, I would say that it's still better to use controllers because it's, it's much easier to manage because um, uh, each controller class has a specific a set of endpoints associated with a particular entity, for example. Uh, 
so yes, in a real life, let's let's say banking application with loads of different endpoints, uh, your uh, program.cs will get cluttered very quickly. Uh, you will have thousands um, lines of uh, of code in it. Uh, there are ways of uh, mitigating that. You can't pass your app object to some uh, other file. Um, you, you you can even use several files to do that. You you can register your own kind of um, uh, middleware handlers. But I, I would say uh, it's probably uh, tidier to do it uh, via controllers still, if your intention is to write many endpoints. So if that's the case, you know, uh, I don't know how many people are always writing just small, simple applications. So, you know, why use minimal APIs at all then and just stick to one one method of doing it, just always use controllers? Uh, well, uh, it doesn't have to be a tiny application. So if you, for example, have uh, uh, up to 20 endpoints, uh, uh, then minimal APIs are still useful. You can also combine the two. You don't necessarily have to use either or. Um, so for, for some endpoints, you can, you can use the minimal APIs, while for other endpoints, you, you, you can use controllers. Uh, let's imagine a scenario where you have a banking app. Um, you have a controller to manage user's data, so it will be uh, you, you use a controller. You, you have a separate controller to manage accounts data, or maybe transactions data. Uh, and then you have a, a whole range of uh, uh, other endpoints that don't neatly fit into any categories that can be handled by your minimal APIs. Or you, you can have things like um, uh, health check endpoints. Uh, ASP.NET does have a um, uh, separate um, health check uh, middleware to, to, to handle health check requests. But you can also uh, have a, a range of uh, minimal API endpoints uh, for anything that does, does not neatly fit in any of the categories covered by your controllers. Let's say uh, a webhook. Uh, so, so, so if your if your API application expects some webhook from a particular source, then it's only going to be one endpoint for that particular category. So that that's, that's a good candidate to to be moved into minimal APIs. Yeah, I I get that. I guess you know if you just want to keep you know some basic endpoints that don't do a lot of work, they're just you know simple things. You could throw that in as a minimal API, and then for your more complex business logic type endpoints, just throw those into a controller. Um, is there a lot of differences in the way that you configure a minimal API endpoint versus a controller endpoint? Uh, you use different syntax, uh, but uh, functionality-wise, uh, uh, it's pretty much the same. Uh, pretty much anything you can do in controllers, you can do in minimal APIs. But uh, in minimal APIs, since uh, .NET uh, 7, uh, th th there are some ways of making it easier. So, for example, you, you can, you can uh, map your uh, request parameters uh, as an object and just insert that one object um, into your method that, that is mapped to the endpoint in the minimal API. You can use dependency injection. Um, uh, obviously, th th there's no separate class for minimal API because you just attach it to... Uh, uh, like map get or map post map delete endpoint method, uh, but uh, you you can use uh, from service attribute and then just inject anything that you registered in your dependency injection. So uh, uh, the the way you do it is different, but what you end up with is similar. I like the syntax of it. 
I think the syntax, I like the, the attributes on the parameters. Um, you were just mentioning uh, dependency injection. And I, I really like that, the from services attribute at the beginning of that uh, parameter to do that. I think it feels like it's really nice and easy to read. Do you, yes. I guess from a, a, you know, the question of like readability and maybe even getting new developers up to speed and also from the perspective of testing, can you compare minimal API endpoints versus traditional endpoints? Are there are there areas where one is better than the other in those categories? Uh, Readability-wise, uh, definitely minimal uh, APIs win. Uh, because for, for controllers, you need to know what base class you inherited from. You need to know other things. You, you, you need to know how to return parameters. What's the difference between uh, uh, I, I action results, uh, I, like JSON result? those kind of things. Uh, with minimal APIs, uh, framework handles all that for you. So it's a very um, simple uh, and not very ver verbose, uh, very concise mapping. Uh, it, uh, I think the idea for minimal APIs came from Node.js uh, because uh, this is how uh, the endpoints are mapped in Node.js. Uh, but but, but, but Node.js no, 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 no came first. Uh, so yeah, in, in terms of... Uh, 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 in terms of uh, how steep uh, the, the learning curve is, minimal APIs are definitely better, way easier to learn than, than controllers. Um, in terms of testing, uh, there's not much difference because uh, we, we, uh, we, we don't tend to call uh, the endpoint methods directly uh, when uh, writing unit tests. Uh, a, 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 a good way to do it would, would be to have some kind of a service being injected into it which contains all the business logic, and you, you would then execute unit tests against that service, not against the endpoint itself. Um, but to test the actual endpoint, uh, you, you would normally uh, do some kind of integration test, which uh, you, uh, and ASP.NET Core allows you to, to do it. It has some libraries. So you, 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 you can actually launch integration tests uh, uh, from the same pipeline as unit tests. And because you're calling HTTP endpoint, uh, it doesn't make any difference whether it's uh, on the controller or if it's mapped in program.cs file. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be mapped in program.cs file because you you, 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 you can right. use separate yeah. classes to do that. But um, uh, the main point is that um, uh, it, it uses those get, uh, uh, like uh, map get, map, map delete, map post, map, uh, map put, those methods, uh, and it, it applies them on the app object. Right, so for maintainability of complex systems with a lot of endpoints, traditional endpoints win. For readability and bringing new developers up to speed, minimal API wins. Yes. And, and it's no difference on testing. No difference on testing, yes. Any other benefits or drawbacks you see when you compare the two? Any benefits or drawbacks? Uh, well, uh, controllers still have more functionality. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head what functionality is missing in the minimal APIs. But it's not uh, uh, as complete as controllers yet because controllers uh, existed for a very long time, e even before .NET became uh, platform independent when it was a Windows-only framework. Uh, it, uh, it, still it still was using controllers. It still had web API in ASP.NET. Uh, 
so that that is perhaps the biggest drawback of it. Yeah, I, I, I like how, you know, what makes it really readable is that it's using the fluid syntax for the configuration of everything. And, you know, looking at your article, you talk about uh, request filters, things like that, that you can put on an endpoint. How do those work? Uh, request filters uh, allow you to uh, uh, insert request processing uh, pipeline uh, into the endpoint itself, basically. Uh, so traditionally, you, you would have some uh, kind of uh, 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 request processing pipeline in the middleware itself, uh, and then you have some logic in it that, that decides uh, what endpoints to apply it to, which is not very neat uh, if you deal with controllers. Uh, controllers uh, normally didn't have that functionality unless you implement it yourself manually. But with, with minimal APIs, that there are some delegates that you can attach um, to your endpoint mappings that uh, will, will do it on per endpoint basis. Uh, so, uh, for example, you, you can use it for things like uh, uh, restricting access to specific users. Uh, it, it basically acts as a filter and also as uh, something that modifies uh, a request before it reaches the business logic. So things you might normally just put within the uh, controller, you know, method body to to handle something, uh, you can just do this within the fluid syntax of a minimal yes. API. Yes, uh, yes. So, so previously there were ways to do it all, but you you had to do uh, everything yourself. You had to write uh, all the logic manually. Um, but with, with minimal APIs, uh, it provides you with, with some delegates that you can. Uh, attached methods to uh, and some nice syntax to execute it as well. Okay. So can you also do things like handling uh, file uploads or things like that within minimal API endpoint? Since uh, version uh, .NET 7, yes, you can. Uh, it's, it's a fairly recent feature, only been available since November. Well, it was available before when it was still in preview. But uh, it's it has been production ready since November, uh, twenty twenty two. But yes, uh, uh, now you can upload files as well, and you can get access to all the uh, the multi part form data that that's coming in. So you can get like if you got multiple files, and then but you also have form data that comes along with it. You can get all that right in your endpoint there. Yes. Nice. Anything else that uh, we haven't covered about? Uh, minimal APIs that uh, we should let our listeners know about? So you, you can't do dependency injection, uh, as I mentioned before, I, even though you, you don't necessarily have to have a separate class for that, because uh, with the recent versions of .NET, you, you can use uh, dependency injection on parameter basis. Is there any performance distance differences between the two? Or is it just because it's a more lightweight endpoint that's not going to do as much heavy business logic that it's it's just going to be faster because of that, but not really faster because of, of the technology behind it. Um, I, I, I cannot provide a detailed answer on that, but my guesstimate is that they are better at the performance because they have fewer things to load. Because with controllers, you have to load the entire class. It inherits from a base class as well. 
so I would imagine that performance would be slightly uh, better with minimal APIs, but probably not by by a lot, because uh, um, most of the things that affect performance with these kind of endpoints is the network itself, or, uh, things like net network latency. Ah, okay, got it, got it. But but dotnet seven itself is um, uh, has higher performance than its predecessor. Um, I think. Uh... What else we wanted to cover today and talk about uh, a little bit is SignalR. You know, I've I've used SignalR once in, in an older full framework application that I worked on, and the reason that I needed SignalR for that application is we often had people editing uh, a form uh, where multiple multiple people were in there, you know, making changes at the same time, and rather than doing a locking mechanism where if somebody says, hey, I'm going to edit this form, it would lock it and nobody else could make changes. And then, of course, they would forget to unlock it or whatever. So I didn't want to go that route. So I set up SignalR so that, you know, as people were making changes to this form, they would see any changes that somebody else made. Um, but that was, you know, that was probably .NET 4.7. 4.8 days. I'm sure this thing's a lot different now. So, uh, you know, tell us about, uh, you know, SignalR and what its latest and greatest things it can do. Uh, so SignalR uh, has been completely rewritten since uh, 2016 when .NET Core uh, became first available. Uh, so the, the version of SignalR that uh, ASP.NET Core uses is very different from uh, the original SignalR that came with um, .NET Framework. SignalR is uh, an inbuilt library. It's uh, available with ASP.NET Core framework. You don't need to install any NuGet packages, nothing like that. What it's used for is to enable a real-time two-way communication between the client and the server. So it's a perfect library to uh, build uh, interactive apps with. Things like uh, messaging apps. So uh, if you expect somebody to send you a message, uh, if you expect to see it in real time, uh, things like uh, delivery tracking on the map, uh, because uh, server will be sending uh, data to the client. Um, so, so both client and the server communicate with each other, but it's not necessarily happening with the request response uh, model. Uh, so with SignalR, there's a persistent connection between the two, and message can travel either way while the connection is, is available. Client initiates the connection, but once the connection is established, the messages go bo both ways. Under the hood, uh, it uses one of uh, three transport mechanisms. By default, it uses WebSocket. The second uh, uh, best mechanism uh, that it will use if uh, you explicitly configure it or if it cannot use WebSocket for some reason is server sent events. And then, uh, failing that, uh, it uses long polling because anything supports long polling, but it's not as efficient as either of those two mechanisms. With WebSocket, normally uh, the way to program WebSocket would be, uh, it, it wouldn't be very easy because uh, what you have to do is um, disassemble message into bytes and reassemble it uh, 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 on the other end as well. With SignalR, everything works, uh, uh, so the, the library does everything for you. Everything works as if you are doing RPCs, uh, remote procedure calls. Uh, you program the client uh, with some named uh, event triggers and you program the server um, with uh, some methods that client can invoke. And, uh, and the way you write the code is almost as if client is calling server methods directly and vice versa. 
so uh, it's it, uh, it. I wouldn't say it's easy because nothing in programming is truly easy, but it makes it a lot easier to implement something as complex as a two-way communication between the client and the server. I use it quite a lot. I wrote quite a lot about it. Uh, on my website, there are quite a few articles about it. I wrote a book about it because um, uh, I've been searching for books on the subject and there weren't any good books available. Uh, one that I found was on the framework, on .NET framework version, which is outdated now. Uh, so I wrote my own. Uh, plus, uh, when I was using it myself, when I was learning how to use it, uh, I found that uh, not all documentation covered all the cases that I needed to find out about. Uh, so I included those in the book as well. Uh, the most interesting project with Sigma R that I've been involved in was um, to get it to control a cluster of IoT devices. Um, it was specific for railway industry. We have this setup where each platform had uh, a device, and those devices were connected to the server hub. Uh, the purpose of these devices, uh, there, there were several, several purposes, but the main purpose was to make uh, train announcements. So um, uh, a certain time before a train is due to arrive at the platform, uh, the device had to make an announcement. Uh, it had to play audio at the platform. Uh, but uh, uh, And it solved many problems. So, for example, uh, traditionally uh, on the train stations, they would get the actor to record all the station names and then just glue them together into the message. We did um, text-to-speech. So the server would send a request to, to text-to-speech server, would get the MP3 back, and would send it uh, to the device on the platform. The server uh, knew all the uh, train movements in real time. The device on the platform didn't. And uh, uh, we used SignalR to send um, uh, uh, the, the audio when the device is due to play it. So, if the, so if the train was late, you'd get a specific message saying when that train would come in? Yes. Uh, nice. so, so client didn't know anything about that. The client was fairly simple. The role of the client was uh, to play audio when uh, it's requested to play audio and also to uh, to know that other devices in the vicinity are playing audio at the moment so they wouldn't talk over each other. So, for example, if a device at platform 1 starts making train announcement and then the device at the platform 2 is about to start making announcement, it will not announce anything until the first device finished. That solves another problem, which is common uh, at train stations, especially in England, where it does actually happen. Where you get two different announcements at the same time? Uh, two different announcements, and not only that, but sometimes uh, you, you're trying to hear the train announcement and the device that is closest to you is actually talking about something like smoking is not permitted at the station. Oh, wow. <laughs> we so we solved that problem. So this is cool. So that means that the the device at platform one, which is across from the device at platform two, has to know when platform two is talking and when it's done, but it yes. doesn't need to know about devices that might be out of earshot, far away. So it kind of needs to know who it's next to. Uh, yes, so, so, so that was configured on the server. Uh, we have this table, uh, which basically uh, told uh, uh, each device uh, what, what the, uh, the nearby devices are. So uh, devices were sp uh, split into clusters. Um, so the, 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 there was this concept of clusters. So um, any devices in the cluster um, are the ones that are located fairly close to each other. Sometimes it is the entire station. Sometimes it's sections of the stations. It, it, it depends on how big the station is, because some stations are just four platforms. 
Yeah, I love this. I love this problem because it's a great problem because you can solve this in a bad way if you don't care about the customer experience. You can yep. solve it in an easy, fast, bad way, right? But if you if you care about it, it's 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 trickier, right? Yeah. Like, and also it's interesting too, right? So in order to get good unit testing on this experience, I would imagine that you would have to create kind of a mock of the of the uh, the, the, the device to some degree and this ability for it to check whether other ones are talking or not, right? Whether whether other ones in the same cluster are there. Uh, it was easy enough because uh, uh, .NET Core is a, a platform independent, uh, uh, OS independent uh, framework. You, you could actually use that technology on Windows as well, on Windows, on Linux, on any development machine. So you can't emulate two devices uh, by using software emulation on your machine and test it this way. Of course, we, we, we run proper tests as well with proper devices, like when, when uh, there are two devices in the room, if they recognize each other. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, because of uh, OS independent nature of the framework itself, it's, it was fairly easy to test. Yeah, it's a fun project. Yeah, I love uh, it. it. It was one of the, my, my, my favorite projects that I did. So there's all sorts of different clients that you could be, you know, serving to, you know, you could be a, a web browser client, you know, IoT client, desktop client, anything like that. Does it, does it require different configurations depending on the different client that you're connecting to the backend server? It doesn't require a different configuration on the server. A server doesn't care about it. Uh, it, it just knows that client is talking to it. Uh, but uh, it requires uh, um, uh, uh, technology-specific library. Uh, Microsoft uh, supports Java, uh, .NET, and JavaScript. But there are also plenty of other... Uh, like, uh, there's a Go library that was created by somebody. There's a Flutter library as well. Uh, th th those aren't official libraries, but uh, it's, it's fairly... Uh, I wouldn't say easy, but uh, it's not... Uh, prohibitively difficult to, to, to write your own library, um, to create your own SigmaR client. Uh, because the message in format itself is just a JSON which has specific fields, like method name, parameter names, uh, and so on. Yeah, I used SignalR to speak with, uh, with, I guess we call them chatbots, that I created for my Twitch stream. And one of the things we were doing is we were rolling uh, dice for the Dungeons and Dragons game. Mm -hmm. And so I would make a call from the server that would basically be roll the dice. This is the damage. This is the, this is the number of dice. This is the type. And then the chatbot overlay, the overlay would be, uh, would roll the dice out in 3D. And if it was like a fire damage, the dice would be on fire. And if it was cold damage, there'd be a winter cloud going. And once the dice stopped rolling, it would then send a single R signal back, send a message back, uh, and, and the chat is, bot is written in uh, JavaScript and TypeScript, but it would send a message back to the uh, server, which was written in C-sharp, and said, here's the, die, here's the die roll. Here's what all the numbers are. Yep. And, uh, and, and that, that complex part of communicating back and forth was handled, you know, transparently behind the scenes, you know, without me having to learn anything 
uh, just by using SignalR. So I really, I really enjoy that experience, right? And and the reliability of it is, um, you, you, that code still works, and I haven't touched it in like two years. You yeah. Know? So, so good. You can scale it as well. You you, you can use it in large scale applications, uh, which uh, I thought at the beginning was impossible because how can you maintain persistent connection, uh, especially if you need to send message to a specific client? If you have Let's, let's say chat application or social network uh, where you need to send a message to a specific client if you have millions of them. But apparently there are two ways of doing so. Uh, first of all, if you are hosting your own signal application, you can just use Redis as a backplane. So all the, the instances of the signal hub that you have will communicate with each other and, uh, uh, when the message comes in one instance and you have to send it to the client connected to another instance. It will still happen as if it's all single hub instance on the server. And the second way is Azure SignalR service, which does quite a lot of stuff for you. So you have you, you don't even have to write as much code. So it seems like there could be some security concerns with setting up SignalR to make, you know, making sure that the right person or the right group gets the right messages, things like that. So what's security like and testing like I guess with uh, SignalR. Uh, so with SignalR, uh, you, you can secure your communication by doing standard uh, like uh, OpenID Connect uh, or OAuth, uh, uh, any other security protocol, protocol that uh, ASP.NET Core supports. Uh, uh, and also by choosing specific user, there's a mechanism of identifying them by uh, randomly generated GUID. So that's going to be your client ID. Uh, uh, so th then it's up to you as an application developer to make sure uh, the message does not leak to, uh, to, to to the client that you, you did not uh, intend to send it to. Uh, so you have to have some mechanism in place to, to map uh, securely uh, uh, a specific message to a specific client ID. But but the, the communication itself. So if it's intercepted, because you you, you still use a, a TLS certificate, you, you still do it over HTTPS. You you still have all the security in place, like um, single sign-on, any other security. Uh, it supports certificate security, for example. In the case with IoT devices, where you you cannot just authenticate as a user, you you can configure a certificate authentication. Okay. So what's what's kind of you know this all seems all great and simple, but there's probably got to be some complexities in there. So when somebody actually goes in there and tries to, you know, work with SignalR, what are the, what's the biggest challenge that they're going to find, you know, in implementing something like this? Uh, the biggest challenge, uh, so for, for maybe 90% of use cases, uh, it's going to be fairly straightforward. Uh, uh, one challenge perhaps is to figure out whether both client and the server in the setup support WebSockets. Uh, it's not necessarily a challenge, but uh, uh, sometimes you have to configure communication protocols explicitly on either client or the server. Uh, because uh, uh, you might end up in a situation where uh, if you just uh, allow SignalR to apply the default um, transport mechanism, which is WebSocket, uh, you, you you might end up in a situation where you, your client is trying to send the messages, but your network or something else on the host does not allow you to. And uh, SignalR isn't isn't smart enough, I guess, to figure out that and and fall back to some other protocol. 
in, in most cases, it's smart enough to, to fall back to certain protocol. Uh, I just had uh, one scenario where uh, it was IIS server where WebSockets were not uh, enabled by default. Uh, the, 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 there was some kind of problem, but it was a while ago, so I don't remember the nature of the problem. But I remember, remember that in that particular scenario, I had to configure transport mechanisms explicit, explicitly. Uh, but, but it's more for advanced cases. So, for example, uh, uh, I, I have been in a situation where uh, Signal Hub uh, needed a client that uh, it was a pure WebSocket client. Um, uh, the technology was limited, so the, the, there was no option of using the Signal client library on that client. Uh, and it, it was also made by our partners, so so we did not control uh, the software on that client. Uh, so we needed to figure out how to connect a pure WebSocket client to Signal Hub. Uh, it it it, uh, it ended up being relatively simple, but uh, we figured out by just connecting our own client via WebSocket and just capturing the packages that were exchanged. So you have to send some handshake package that Signal understands before. You, you can connect your pure WebSocket client. Uh, I did write an article about it, and it's also covered in my book. Okay. So is is there any uh, limitations to SignalR? I mean, can can it do things, you know, uh, like streaming rather than just uh, message sending? It can do streaming, yes. Uh, it, uh, I haven't uh, used streaming personally uh, uh, that much because, um, like, for, for example, with gRPC streaming, the reason why it exists is to, to uh, send messages from the server or to, from, uh, from the client to the server asynchronously. But SignalR does it by default anyway. So in most of the cases, uh, streaming is redundant. But uh, there is both uh, client-initiated stream and server-initiated stream uh, in SignalR available. You can use SignalR to stream videos, stream audios. Uh, it's not uh, as good, perhaps, uh, for uh, streaming just individual objects individual messages. Uh, but streaming can still be very useful in SignalR if you need to receive uh, a series of messages from either client or the server in a very specific order. If there is a particular piece of business logic, because if you send them as individual messages, you trigger uh, one piece of business logic. If you uh, send them as a stream, uh, they're all going to come to the same method. Uh, so if you need to uh, uh, get the method to capture several messages, in a specific order. This is a scenario where streaming will be useful. And is there any, any sort of limitations or a point at which you have so many people connected to an endpoint that it starts to you know drag things down? Uh, there is a limitation. Uh, I can't, can't remember the number uh, of uh, 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 maximum connections off the top of my head. But as I mentioned previously, you can scale it out. You, you can use either Redis backplane or SignalR service. Um, so basically, there's a limitation of how many um, active connections you can connect to one server instance. But if you scale it out, then you, you can have multiple instances. So it's not going to be a problem anymore. Okay, Sorry. so if you're, you're, if you're in some sort of a server farm or something like that, then you need to make sure that they're all, you know, communicating with each other and know what messages have been sent or messages that are coming in. You can use some um, sort of a backplane or something like that. Yes, so, so uh, if you host it yourself, you would use something like a Redis backplane. Uh, it's a technology supported by SignalR out of the box. So Redis is going to be used as a backplane uh, uh, to exchange the data between the instances of your server-side SignalR hub. Uh, so uh, as I mentioned previously, for example, if you have a chat application, 
uh, if it's a huge chat application with a million users or so on. If one user uh, that is connected to one instance of the hub is trying to send a message to uh, a user connected to another instance, uh, the signal backplane will, will, will know about it. Uh, it. It will send, it, it will know which specific signal clients are connected to which instances of the hub. And it will redirect the message to that specific instance of the hub. And it will work exactly the same way as if you only had one hub instance. Oh, cool. Um, I guess we're uh, we're running towards the end of the our time here. You know, is there any last uh, few things that you wanted to throw out there and and talk about before we move on to picks? Well, one technology that I've been uh, uh, using quite a lot as well is the gRPC, uh, and gRPC is the uh, first uh, uh, citizen in .NET. It's been like that since uh, .NET three, if I remember correctly. And one cool feature that has been added to gRPC functionality in .NET 7 is uh, JSON transcoding. Because previously, if you needed to create endpoints for gRPC and for uh, REST API, what you had to do is create two separate endpoints. With uh, gRPC JSON transcoding, uh, what uh, you can do is just apply a couple of config files, and your gRPC endpoint can be used as a REST API endpoint as well. So you, you don't have to write as much code, but you, you, you will be able to access it from a Swagger page. You will be able to just send uh, standard HTTP requests uh, to that endpoint. Uh, and you will also be able to access it from the browser because gRPC is not, is not available from the browser unless you apply certain uh, third-party libraries like gRPC web. Yeah, I, I would try to work on uh, gRPC for one of my projects uh, about a year ago. And that's one of the limitations that we ran into is we wanted to use it for client server communication and it just became too much, you know, to get that working. You know, it seemed better suited at that time for server to server con communications rather than, you know, client to server. So that it sounds like that might have gotten better over the past year. Uh, so, so basically, uh, even, even though modern browsers support HTTP2, which is required for gRPC, they don't support uh, all HTTP2 features. And some of the features that browsers don't support are actually the features that gRPC needs. Uh, so th this is the reason why browsers um, don't yet fully support gRPC. So you have to find ways around it. But with JSON transcoding, you don't have to use gRPC to access the same endpoints that uh, your other services uh, connect to via gRPC. Uh, so, so for, for example, in a scenario where you have an application where uh, that you will be accessing from browser via REST API and you, you, you will be accessing um, from some microservice via gRPC. Previously, you had to write two separate endpoints for that. And with JSON transcoding, you only write one gRPC ser server implementation and you will have two endpoints, two for the price of one, essentially. Yeah, I th I think that uh, covers things pretty good about uh, you know minimal API, SignalR, a little bit about uh, gRPC. So, I guess we should uh, move on to picks then. Mark, let's do it. Your, yeah, Mark, what's your pick? Um, I think I'm going to throw out uh, my own product here, which you know I manage, but I get you know, it's free. Kids, so don't think I'm, you know, this is a marketing thing uh, because we just are releasing a new, it's free, it uh, sits inside of Visual Studio, it's, the product name is Code Rush, 
And uh, we just released a new feature that uh, I obsessed over in the creation of, and I, and I think it's really well done. Uh, the feature is called Jump Codes, and it allows you to go to any screen with code on it that you can see on your monitor uh, with just a, the very fewest keystrokes. So you might have multiple monitors with you know, multiple windows of Visual Studio code, uh, Visual Studio code windows up, and uh, you just hit a key to invoke it. Wherever you're looking, the code appears. You type in the code that you see, and the carrot's there. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what I'll say. I'll say Code Rush. <laughs> Go get it, kids, if you're not using it. It's free. I'm not getting any money from this. <laughs> Are you working on Code Rush AI? I am. That was my second choice. Was I, I've been I've been working with OpenAI, and I've been discovering some really interesting things about it. Um, it's it's really really interesting, and where it's going is going to get even more interesting. Like today, I I said, I said, simplify this method for me. I gave it a you know a, me a method that was overly complex. I wanted to see if we could figure out how to simplify it. It comes back with a pretty good job. It, it essentially nailed everything except for it added, it kept the private keyword, which is by default, it, it's private anyway, so it, it didn't need that. But I was like, whoa, we're getting, we're getting <laughs> right on the edge here of some very cool stuff, right? And I'm actually, I'm actually right now writing, I think I'm working on about three or four different AI-based features for CodeRush that I'm excited about, super excited about. But I'll, I'll blab about those later. Okay. Yeah, I, I think instead of AI being artificial intelligence, I think it should be like assistant intelligence. You know, sure. it's kind of helping yeah. you out with things, you know. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I think we did the AI show a while back. I think you weren't here for that, Sean. Yeah, but I think did. on yeah. that show, I, I, was, I was the guy saying game over for my ultimate prediction. But I did say it's going to get better before it gets worse. It's going to get really good before it gets worse. It'll be like, I think as developers, each developer will be like they're managing a team of developers, right? They'll be able to say, work on this task, work over here, create this for me, do that piece right there. And those, those little tasks will all be working and maybe communicating with each other and kind of like planting seeds and growing the code while you do whatever you have to do, right? Yep, I think that's, that's why where there's all gonna... those, those. That's why there's all those job postings for prompt engineers. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, it's not just prompting though. That the thing that is really interesting that I've learned in the work that I've been doing in exploration is it's also conditioning the response that comes back, because the response that comes back, you know, might be eighty percent awesome, like eighty percent really remarkably awesome and time saving. And maybe 20% what? Like that. <laughs> and so you can't, and you can't tell really the AI. You could tell the AI, I don't need the, the what. But the AI likes to be kind of, you know, it likes, to, it likes to express itself a little bit. It likes to put those things in there. So you kind of need a secondary level. You need the prompting engineering at the beginning. And you need a secondary level at the next stage. And if you're in the middle of a conversation, you need some kind of, uh, correction prompt as well if it goes off if it strays yeah but i don't want to like take over the pics conversation with all this talk <laughs> no 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 
but just, it's, just, it's exciting. Just so interesting, yeah, and exciting, yep, definitely, yeah. definitely. All right, so uh, my pick this week is an application that I use, I just recently started using for managing the uh, softball team that I'm on. You know, I, I've always played softball for, slow pitch softball for about 25 years, things like that. Managed a team for probably 20 years, things like that. And it's always been, you know, trying to f- keep track of well, who's coming to the next game and is everybody going to show up? You know, do I have enough players to, to put a team out there or do I need to find substitutes, things like that? So I was uh, looking for something that will help me do that. And I came upon a, an application called Bench App. And it's, it's really nice because it, it lets me post when the games are and then each person is going to get prompted, you know, are you attending, you're not attending, things like that. But it also has built-in chat, so I don't know if they're using SignalR or anything like that. So, uh, But it allows all the team to chat to each other so they can, you know, let us know, hey, uh, I'm going to be out because of this reason. I'm on vacation or, or taking a trip or, you know, something happens or whatever. They can you know, let me know last, last minute rather than, you know, me just, you know, trying to keep track of my email while I'm, sitting there at the field going, I still don't have everybody here. So if you uh, work with sports teams, it doesn't have to be softball. It can be any type of sports team, organization, things like that. Uh, check out uh, Bench App. All right, Fyodor, uh, do you have a pick for us? And, uh, my pick will be uh, underrated uh, uh, library slash uh, command line tool made by .NET team called ML.NET which is uh, basically uh, a .NET based uh, tool to uh, train your machine learning models. It supports a wide range of machine learning tasks like binary classification, image classification. Um, uh, out of the box, you, you can do supervised and unsupervised learning with it. Uh, it uh, the, the best thing about it is that um, it allows you to learn machine learning as a developer. If you don't have any data science experience at all, uh, it basically just uh, uh, makes the learning curve m- much gentler. Uh, because to train your model, you don't have to do much. It will select algorithm for you. It will assess several algorithms. Uh, it will uh, uh, then uh, uh, select the one that, that produced the, the best score, the, the, the best fitting model. Uh, you can, of course, then go, go ahead and uh, learn some more things about machine learning. But you, you can basically start using it uh, just by knowing the most basic things about machine learning and nothing else. Basically, you, you don't have to be a data scientist. Uh, I've been using it quite a lot in my spare time. I've been playing playing with it quite a lot, and it's just amazing. And I'm just surprised it's not used uh, in many more projects that, that, that it's used in. Uh, I did actually propose uh, to, to my CTO to use it for anomaly detection, uh, to create uh, automated uh, alerts and things like that. Uh, because it's, it's quite good uh, uh, for, for this task. And you can't do deep learning with it as well. You you can't actually construct uh, neural networks with it as well. Yeah, that sounds like uh, maybe uh, a topic for a, a future episode. So we'll to talk about, you know, I think we've really got yeah. into machine learning on, on our show in the past. So definitely. Let me just the official website because uh, Microsoft is not very good at... Uh, Indexing uh, the, the official website. This is why I'm just getting a lot of tutorials from third parties. But yeah, uh, you know, Sean, I'm thinking about building my own my own robot and machine learning it, 
to that teach it that it's human like me so that <laughs> when the robot overlords come to get me my machine robot will be on my side and mm. it'll it'll be like and then tell they like maybe hold a mirror up to it and then it'll look at me like <laughs> I betrayed it and it'll come kill me. Sean, it's gonna kill me. Yeah. No, no, he's the robot. I, I'm a human, or no, he's the human, I'm the robot. <laughs> I just try to find, find a way to survive the <laughs> oncoming doom that I'm helping, you know, rush in. That's all. Yeah. Thanks, John. <laughs> okay. All right, Fyodor. Uh if our uh, listeners have questions, uh, we'll definitely uh Put some links to your your site in the show notes but if they re- want to reach yeah. out to you what's the best way and get to get in touch the best way to get in touch is uh, via linkedin i'm quite active on linkedin um i'm also available uh, there's also email address i can share with you uh, which is uh, f.sazanovets at gmail.com this is my main email address Okay, but LinkedIn is probably the best place because uh, I check it every day. I'm on it. I, I post on it quite actively. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for uh, being on the show today, Fyodor. It was great to to talk with you and uh, some good topics. Hopefully, our listeners got some uh, good information. It's been my pleasure. Yep. Thank you for inviting me. And if our listeners have feedback for the show or topic suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. You can get me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. And thanks, everybody. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye.